Episode 13, The Buddha. Hi, my name is Clayton Mills. Welcome to A Short Walk Through Our Long History, a podcast where we look at the events of history and try to see how those events shaped our modern world. This is Episode 13, The Buddha. So far in this podcast, I have mostly focused on the events that shaped Western history, But doing that admittedly leaves out a lot of other events that were happening in places like China, Japan, Africa, and India. We kind of drifted near India in the last episode because Alexander went conquering in that direction, but we haven't really spent any time on Indian history. So now that we're done with Alexander and all the Golden Age of Greece stuff, and before we get on to the Roman Republic, let's go back to India for a moment and talk about one of the biggest events there around this time period. So just to clarify as far as time period, we're going a bit backwards in time, back to the mid-500s BC. We got all the way up to 167 BC in the last episode because it made sense to talk about the kingdoms that came about as a result of Alexander's mad spree of conquering, but now we need to go back in time 400 years to talk about the Buddha. Buddha was probably born around 563 BC, although there is some scholarly debate about that date. Some scholars think he was born a good bit later than that. But the oldest tradition states that he was born around 563, so we'll go with that. The middle 500s takes us back to the time of the exile of the Judeans in Babylon, and just after that, Cyrus the Great, the king of Media and Persia. So about the times of the books of Daniel and Nehemiah in the Old Testament. The middle 500s is also just before the founding of the Roman Republic, during the reigns of the last kings of Rome. We're also back to just before the Golden Age of Greece, which starts around 528 BC with the reign of Pisistratus, who started the reforms that led to Athenian democracy. And just to be a little bit more well-rounded about what's going on in the world, in Central America in the mid 500s BC, the Olmec Kingdom was reaching its largest extent and about to begin a big decline. We don't know much about the Olmecs, but they left behind these huge blocks of stone carved into sort of cubical head shapes. Google Olmec head and you'll see what I mean. I do plan to talk more about the ancient civilizations of the Americas much later in the flow of this podcast, so I'll probably come back to them at some point about when we get to the Europeans discovering the New World. So, we're back in the mid-500s BC, and we're back in India, slowly working our way around to talking about the Buddha. Before I talk about his life, though, I think I need to give just a little bit of background on the religion and culture of India at the time. So, we're going to talk a little bit about Hinduism before we talk about Buddhism. Boy, talk about a couple of topics that are hard to explain. Hinduism and Buddhism? Yeah, we're clearly not going to do them justice just by talking about them in a single podcast episode, but... Buddhism was kind of a reaction to Hinduism, so it makes sense to explain what the Buddha was reacting to. In India, in the mid-500s, there were several large kingdoms ruling over different parts of the peninsula of India, but they all had a common religion, namely Hinduism. But Hinduism in northern India looks very different than Hinduism in southern India. Different gods, different rituals, different festivals, but somehow it's all still Hinduism. This is one of the things that makes Hinduism difficult to describe. But there are some common beliefs that almost all Hindus share, and back in 500 BC, there was also a common social structure. I'm not going to dig too much into the beliefs of Hinduism, even though I would like to. It's a fascinating subject. 
but I will mention a few beliefs that most Hindus share. They believe in reincarnation and that if you don't live a good life, you can come back as an animal or as a lower class person. That lower class thing makes a big difference and I'll come back to that in a minute. Hindus also believe in karma, another thing that's hard to define, but it's basically the idea that all of your actions, good or bad, attract some kind of karma. If you live a good life, you attract good karma. If you live a bad life, you attract bad karma. Or more generally, if you do good things, good things will happen to you. And if you do bad things, Santa will bring you coal. No, if you do bad things, bad things will just sort of happen to you. And the type of karma you accumulate over your life determines what will happen to you when you're reincarnated. So if you had a really bad, bad life, you might come back as a rat or an even lower animal, like a politician. But this brings us to the Hindu social structure thing, which is important for our understanding of Buddhism, which I will get to, I promise. Hinduism enforced a very rigid social structure, and you were born into one of four social castes, as they were called. The highest caste were the Brahmins. They were the priests and the spiritual leaders. Below them were the warriors and political leaders. And below that was the workers. And below that, the lowest class, the untouchables, who were basically just peasants. If you were from an upper caste, you couldn't touch someone from the lowest caste, or you would become unclean, hence the name untouchables. You were born into a caste, and you couldn't leave it. Your only way out of the caste was through reincarnation, and if you lived a good life, you could be reincarnated as a person in a higher caste, and vice versa, if you lived a bad life, you could be reincarnated as a person in a lower caste. But the structure, while you were alive, was extremely rigid, and the upper two castes basically had all the good stuff. They owned all the property, and they had all the political and social power. They were the oligarchs of their day. The whole religious structure and belief system reinforced the rigid social structure. You really didn't mix with people outside of your caste. The Brahmins, the highest caste, were the priests, and they sort of controlled the whole system. If you wanted to do almost anything, there was a priestly ritual that had to be done, and if you didn't do it, you'd get bad karma. So the priests and the religious belief system supported these divisions of society, and especially kept the priests at the top. In about 563 BC, in the northeast part of India, a prince's wife gave birth to his first son. They named this son Siddhartha Gautama, but we know him more commonly today as Buddha. According to the stories, the prince's wife had a vision that the son would either be a wandering Hindu holy man or a great king. Because of that vision, the prince kept Siddhartha within their housing compound, not letting him out to see the rest of the city. His father had him married early, and he even had a daughter. He lived a luxurious life there in his father's palace. But one day, he got bored, and he had his charioteer drive him out of the palace, where he saw an old, old man who was decrepit and near death. The sight shocked him. He went out into the city again, and he saw a diseased man, and then a corpse, and a wandering ascetic monk. After seeing these sights, he knew that living in luxury was not the right way to live. He left the compound, leaving his wife and daughter behind. And, you know, I've never really understood that part of his story. But he leaves them behind, and he joins a group of wandering holy men. And he spent the next few years living in poverty, trying to find enlightenment. Now, I should pause here and try to explain a bit about the Hindu and Buddhist idea of enlightenment. In the Eastern mind, 
Enlightenment's not just a sense of growing and understanding over time. Enlightenment, in the Eastern sense, means something like a sudden spiritual revelation after which you are fully enlightened and you fully understand everything. It's a state where the mind is completely peaceful and the soul is one with the universe. It's not something you earn by study. It just sort of happens to you. And afterwards, you don't need to search for it anymore. You just have it. One of the big issues I see with Eastern religions is that, for all of them, their ultimate goal is enlightenment. But apparently, very, very few people actually ever achieve it. Siddhartha himself did not achieve it wandering around with the aesthetics. He did not become enlightened while he was wandering around with them. He punished his body to get rid of its connection to the world, but that did not bring him enlightenment. After a few years of this, and not finding enlightenment, he was discouraged, and he sat down in the shade of a pleasant fig tree, also known as a Bodhi tree. While he was sitting there, unbidden, enlightenment came to him. He realized that neither the way of luxury that he had been born into, nor the way of ascetic denial was actually the path to understanding, and he realized that there was another way. He apparently saw, in his little enlightenment moment, what he later called the Four Noble Truths. The first truth is that life is suffering, or as it's often stated, to live is to suffer. That's not exactly a new idea. It's not new with the Buddha. Life is pain, princess, and anyone who tells you differently is trying to sell you something. But the Buddha's second idea was different. The second noble truth is that suffering comes from desire. In other words, all of our suffering is because we want something, and if we don't get it, we suffer. And the third truth follows from that. To be free of desire is to be free of suffering. What he's saying is that the only way to not suffer in life is to not have any desires at all. To not desire pleasure, to not desire existence, to not desire non-existence, to not even desire enlightenment, to simply cease desiring. And the fourth noble truth is that there's a pathway to eliminating desires. This vision of how to live without desiring anything was radical. It was different than the Hindu asceticism, which was built on the desire to be free of the things of the world. That's still desiring, though. You wanted something to be free of the world. Siddhartha realized that this, too, was a form of wanting, of desiring, and this, too, led to suffering. The only way to be free was to stop desiring. This vision was Siddhartha's enlightenment experience. From this point on, he began to wander around and teach people. But he wasn't the typical wandering Hindu ascetic. He was much more willing to eat and be jolly with the people, which is why so many popular statues of the Buddha depict him as this kind of chubby little fellow with a big smile on his face. By the way, the word Buddha just means enlightened one, so technically anyone could become a Buddha, and some branches of Buddhism teach this. But still, when you say the Buddha, everyone knows that you mean Siddhartha Gautama. And after the enlightenment experience, he was always called the Buddha. So he wanders around teaching people his four noble truths and the pathway to, in, to achieve enlightenment themselves. Buddha's teaching was not compatible with the caste system, nor with the religious practices of the day that were supported by the priests, the Brahmins. In fact, he began to teach that the caste system itself was a false way to live since it was built on desires. His followers came from all the castes, including the untouchables, and the movement grew quite quickly. It expanded in northeast India at first, but then it spread both north and east. 
up into Tibet and Nepal and then into China as it went north. And then it spread down into Southeast Asia, into Burma, Thailand, and Vietnam. It eventually spread to Korea and then to Japan. I mentioned two episodes ago that Socrates was maybe the most influential person besides Jesus who never wrote anything down. Well, I should amend that because the Buddha is right up there in influence with both of those guys, even Jesus, and he apparently never wrote anything down either. His followers did write down some of his sayings. His followers began to collect his sayings and write them down, and they literally kept the sayings on pieces of paper in baskets. This collection became known as the Tripitaka, which literally means three baskets. But part of Buddhism is that it has always been mysterious and non-doctrinal. That is, it doesn't have hard and fast beliefs that everyone must follow, everyone must believe, or everyone must do. It's kind of vague on what you should believe and what you should do and how you should live. In fact, you could just about believe anything you want and call yourself Buddhists. Buddhists don't see the Buddha's teaching in the same way that Jesus' followers saw his teaching. It's a very, very different approach. Whereas Christians down through the ages have tended to look at the words of Christ and then tried to parse out very explicit, very clear meanings from his words, and they saw the words of the New Testament as having the weight of the very words of God himself. In contrast to that, the followers of Buddha took a different approach and they saw Buddha's words as mysterious riddles to be pondered, but without any single right answer. It's one of the big distinctions between the mindset of the Eastern world and the mindset of the Western world. In the West, we are inheritors of the Greek tradition of philosophy, especially Aristotle, and the Roman tradition of precision and definition, plus the church's tradition of treating Jesus' words as the very words of God. And so thus, we need to figure out the very specific, precise meaning of those words and then obey them precisely. And part of the Western world's mindset is the idea that truth is singular. There's one truth. And that with study and discipline, we can zero in on that truth. In the East, they don't see truth as singular. Truth is much more vague. And instead of seeing Buddha's words as a guide to the truth, they saw them more as riddles to ponder without a single clear meaning. To them, there can be lots of different truths. They just see the world very differently than we do in the West. And some of that comes from the life of the Buddha. So in his life, the Buddha lives for about 80 years, and he spends about 45 years wandering around teaching his ideas and spreading this new idea of Buddhism. When he died, he was cremated, and his remains were given to various different groups. In fact, I've been to a temple in Thailand that supposedly had a part of one of Buddha's toes. Buddha made a huge impact on the religious thinking of Asia. I thought it was worth bringing up the Buddha in this podcast because eventually Buddhism begins to make some significant inroads in Western thinking, particularly in the 1960s. I'm getting way ahead of myself here, but what I'm trying to show is how things in the ancient world affect the modern world, and Buddhism is one of those things. One of the things that happened after World War II was that many people, especially young people, began to reject the prevailing mindset of the West. That mindset is often called modernism, and though it brought about some amazing advances, it also brought about some horrible disasters, and it brought a sense to many people that the materialism of the world just wasn't right. It wasn't enough. Buddhism offered an alternative. Buddhism, especially Zen Buddhism, became very popular in California 
and the West Coast during the 1960s as people rejected Christianity, modernism, and materialism that they had seen in the previous generations. Buddhism offers a kind of non-judgmental path to spirituality without any real rules for behavior, which was kind of the ethos of the 1960s anyway. Another aspect of Buddhism, at least in some of its branches, is that it emphasizes the idea that everything is an illusion. The world we see around us is not real, per se. It's an illusion. And the reality is that everything is one. It's all connected, even though it looks like it's not. It looks a lot like this desk is a different thing than me. But Buddhism would say that I and the desk are the same, and that the distinction is an illusion. It's a bit of a strange concept, but if you think about it scientifically, there's a bit of truth to it. Both I and the desk are made of atoms, and there's nothing different about the desk's protons, neutrons, and electrons than my own protons, neutrons, and electrons. They're the same, the same kind of atoms. In fact, as I stand here, it's a standing desk, I'm absorbing some of the desk's protons, neutrons, and electrons into my body, and it's absorbing some of mine. We're exchanging all these subatomic particles. If you go deeper below the level of protons, neutrons, and electrons, you get down to quarks, which are just sort of packets of energy. Just bundles of energy, which, when organized in certain ways, give us protons or neutrons or electrons. So at some level, both the desk and I are just made up of energy. So Buddhism would say that this means that the distinction between myself and the desk is an illusion, and that the truth is that I and the desk are one. In fact, all is one. This is very different from the Western worldview that holds that I and the desk are two distinct things. To a Western mind, even though the desk is composed of atoms and I'm composed of atoms, we are two distinct things. Buddhism, in contrast, says that that's an illusion. The Western world says that the real world is indeed real and that the distinctions between things are real, not an illusion. But part of Buddhism is this idea of seeing the interconnectedness of all things. And part of the goal of Buddhism is to live in harmony with all the other things. I mentioned Zen Buddhism. Buddhism has several main branches, all with their own distinctives. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but after the death of the Buddha, Buddhism spread out around Asia and it developed differently in different areas. Not too long after the death of the Buddha, Buddhism was kind of driven out of India and Hinduism took back over, even in the area where the, the Buddha was from. One branch of Buddhism developed in Southeast Asia, and that branch focuses the most on the original teachings of the Buddha. To the north of India, in China, Buddhism incorporated many of the local beliefs and it became a much broader, more inclusive religion. This branch is more focused on rituals and it's more likely to see the Buddha as a kind of god to be worshipped. In Tibet, Buddhism fused with local occult religions, and Tibetan Buddhism is very shamanistic and full of mystical rituals in the occult. In Korea and Japan, though, Buddhism developed into what is known as Zen Buddhism. The goal of Zen Buddhism is to achieve a completely tranquil mind and body. That state is known as Zen. Zen Buddhism is non-rational. That is, it's not something you can really explain rationally or even understand. You just have to experience it. So Zen Buddhism does not focus on teaching doctrines or ideas. It just focuses mostly on meditation to quiet the mind and the body. The ultimate goal of Zen is to have your mind totally quiet and be at peace and be at harmony with everything around you. Zen also focuses on living in the moment and only being aware of the current moment, not the past nor the future, since those things are even more illusory. 
the goal is to be completely content in the current moment. It's this form of Buddhism, Zen Buddhism, that has most taken hold in the West. The non-rational or even anti-rational point of view is very appealing to some people who have already rejected the intensely rational Western modern mindset. Modernism, which is sort of a worldview and sort of a philosophy, was kind of the core worldview of the West from the beginning of the Industrial Age until the end of the 1950s when postmodernism began to take over. We'll go into those isms more later in, in depth, but my point here is just that modernism, with its emphasis on science, technology, progress, and precise explanations of everything, ended up leaving a lot of people feeling empty. And Buddhism was one of the places that people went to find some sense of spirituality in life. For someone who wants some spirituality, but doesn't want to acknowledge a higher power to whom they're responsible, Buddhism offers this kind of non-religious path to spirituality where you can kind of believe anything you want to since there's no doctrinal standard to compare your beliefs to. Also, it's kind of non-rational, as I said, and they just don't emphasize the things you're supposed to believe. So it's very different from the standard Western religions of Christianity, Islam, and Judaism in that way. Those emphasize doctrine, and they spend a lot of time talking about the meanings of different texts and how we should understand those texts it's kind of a polar opposite mindset, in fact, and I mention it here because it has taken root in the West. One of the places that Buddhism has influenced the West is our popular culture. The Beatles experimented with Buddhism, especially George Harrison and John Lennon. It deeply influenced their album Revolver and songs on some of their subsequent albums as well. You see the influence even more clearly in George and John's later solo albums. The Star Wars movies are also full of Buddhist themes and ideas. The idea of the Force, a sort of living manifestation of the interconnectedness of all things. It's a very Buddhist idea. The Jedi, and especially Master Yoda, are sort of Buddhist monks and at the same time samurai soldiers. In The Empire Strikes Back, Yoda says this to Luke and to a disembodied Obi-Wan who is sort of listening to their conversation in Yoda's hut. A Jedi must have the deepest commitment, the most serious mind. This one, a long time have I watched. All his life he has looked away, to the future, to the horizon. Never his mind on where he was, what he was doing. Adventure, excitement, a Jedi craves not these things. You are reckless. Very zen never his mind on where he was, what he was doing. Mindfulness like that is a very Zen idea. Also, the idea of trusting your feelings and doing things by intuition, not by rational thought. That's also very Zen. Trust your feelings, Luke, as Obi-Wan says a couple of times. And then later in the third trilogy, in The, the Last Jedi, Luke is pictured on Achto, sitting in deep meditation as he projects an avatar of himself over to the planet where he's fighting Kylo Ren. It's a very Buddhist pose that he's sitting in, and also a very Buddhist idea. Then Luke vanishes, as the Jedi do. Also a very Buddhist idea, that you can completely free yourself from the material world. Another movie series that's heavily influenced by Buddhism is The Matrix, and it's lame sequels. The core idea of the Matrix is that the world we live in is an illusion and that we need to wake up from it. In the movie, though, the other world we wake up to isn't any better than the world we left, which is a bit of a plot flaw, and it's different from Buddhism. 
But the idea that our world is an illusion and that we need avatars like Neo and Trinity and Morpheus to lead us out of the illusion, that's a very Buddhist idea. At one point, Morpheus calls the Matrix a prison of the mind. And this is how Buddhism, especially Zen Buddhism, would explain how our minds keep us from seeing the truth about the world. Our minds are imprisoned by their perceptions of the world around us, and we need to be set free from this illusion. So, if you as a religion have influenced the Beatles, and you've influenced the Matrix, and Star Wars, yeah, it's safe to say you've had an influence on the modern world. The last Zen influence on Western culture I want to mention is a book. The best-selling book on philosophy in the last 50 years is a book called Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. It's a very interesting read, and I almost mentioned it earlier when I was talking about Plato, because Robert Piercig, the author of Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, does a similar thing to what Plato does. He talks about philosophy and philosophical questions using a series of dialogues between people, including the narrator talking to himself. But he doesn't answer the questions specifically in the same way that Plato doesn't answer the questions specifically. One of the things that Piercig focuses on in his book is the idea of quality. Like I said when we were talking about Plato, how do we know that this desk is a good desk or not a good desk? Quality is a sort of ranking. This is a lower quality desk than other desks I have used. But how do I know that? It's similar to Plato's investigation into the forms, especially the form of the good. It's an interesting question, at least to me, and an interesting book. It's worth a read, even for those of you who aren't interested in Zen or motorcycle maintenance or whether or not this wobbly desk is any different from me at all. So, Buddha and Buddhism, which started back in the mid-500s BC, has an influence on our modern world, especially in Asia, and even here in the West. Not one of the biggest influences on the modern Western world, but still worth talking about here. Next episode, we'll jump back around the world again, and we'll take a look at another major influence on the modern world. Study Rome, we will. Mm -hmm.